This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Kevin Griffin. Kevin is a longtime Buddhist practitioner and 12-step participant. He's a leader in the mindful recovery movement and one of the founders of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Kevin has trained with the leading Western Vipassana teachers, among them Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and Ajahn Amaro. Kevin Griffin emerged as an innovator in the field of addiction treatment with his book, One Breath at a Time. With Sounds True, Kevin has published a new book called Recovering Joy, A Mindful Life After Addiction. And he's also created two new audio programs, Recovery, One Breath at a Time, and One Breath, 12 Steps, A Buddhist Path to Recovery from Addiction, where he shares personal insights from his own struggle with addiction and offers guided meditations and practices to support each step of the recovery process. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Kevin and I spoke about the special challenges faced by people who have recovered from an addiction when it comes to inviting in joy and happiness. We also talked about walking the talk, what it means to integrate our values with our behavior, and what Kevin calls the bliss of blamelessness. Finally, we talked about connections between the 12-step journey and the path of Buddhist meditation. Here's my conversation with Kevin Griffin. Kevin, the opening chapter to your new book, Recovering Joy, is called Not Unhappy. And I really liked that as a chapter title, Not Unhappy. And I thought that's a really good way to describe things. And I'd love to know for you, what does that mean, not unhappy? Well, you know, it was actually one of the titles I had for the book, uh, but uh, it was probably wise not to use it. Um, not unhappy, to me, it's about um, not having some idea of happiness that's sort of uh, unattainable. And instead, thinking in terms of when things aren't painful, they're okay. Uh, and and I, there's such a tendency in the sort of happiness business to, to oversell things. And I wanted to, I wanted to undersell in a way and say, you know, just, if you're just not unhappy, that's good. I noticed when I read it, 
those words, not unhappy. I relaxed a little bit. I thought, oh, you know, thank goodness this is a book and it's going to be on happiness, but it's not going to put all of this pressure on me, which is, I think, part of what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's how it feels to me. It's a funny, well, it's a, it's a double negative. So I think it takes our minds a moment to process it. And, um, and there is something about it that I feel the same way, that it relaxes me, just not unhappy. Oh, good. I'm, I can do that. Yeah. Right now, am I unhappy? No. So good. Okay. And then the actual opening sentence of the book, I'm not really a happiness guy. Okay, so given that, you're not really a happiness guy, and the opening yeah. chapter is this double negative, why did you write a book on happiness? Well, <laughs> writers, of course, write what they need to hear. Teachers teach what they need to learn. Um, but really, the reason I wrote it um, the initial inspiration, I was teaching a retreat at Omega Institute, um, and it was a really rich time. We, the, it was about a four or five day retreat and wor- workshop, and people were really getting a lot out of it. And it was intense and kind of a lot of insights coming up, and I could see that people were really learning a lot and growing. But near the end of the retreat, I realized that there was still this feeling of heaviness in the room and I felt as if I had brought people to this kind of dark place without bringing them through it to the other side um, so a lot of my work around recovery certainly in the beginning was was working with this dark stuff around addiction and all the um, you know problems in my life at that time and all the harm I had done and trying to grow up and change and all of that and understand myself and and when I got through that work not that it's ever completely done but when I really got a sense that okay I've really done a lot of processing work through this stuff it was clear that I wanted something more than to just sit around taking my as they say moral inventory every day and 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 um you know i i definitely saw recovery as a chance for happiness um and i could i just realized that a lot of people get kind of stuck in this place in the recovery process and there's and this is a little bit it's it's one of those subtexts that gets uh instilled in the 12-step world, in 12-step meetings, that you better watch out. Don't get too happy because if you do, you're going to relapse. You know, uh, you're going to, so you have to kind of keep a, a lid on it and you have to kind of be vigilant about, you know, if you say something or do something that's not wise or that's harmful in some way, quickly, you know, take care of that, make amends, write an inventory, uh, as though we're we're just always ready to explode or something. And, and I just don't believe that, that people who are 
established in their recovery, not not newcomers, but people who have been in recovery for a while, need to live like that with that sense of, of fear hanging over their heads. And now help me understand that for a moment. I, w- I didn't quite follow you when you say it's unwise to not get too happy if you're in a recovery process. What's the fear that if you get too happy, then you'll have a fall of some kind and then you'll re-engage with your addiction? Yes, because there, it's kind of a sense that, you know, what we did when we were addicts and alcoholics was we were out there partying and having fun all the time and being irresponsible, which is, you know, true. And that, that um, you know, if we don't, if we just sort of try to pursue this life of having fun, that that's going to kind of lead us towards that. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, go to a show tonight and see some music. Okay, great. You know, you're sober. Fine. You go to a but where are you going to see music? Well, at a bar. Okay, so you go to a bar, and it's like, well, here I am. I'm having fun. I don't really feel like I'm an alcoholic anymore. I haven't had a drink in five years. You know, I guess I'll just have one glass of wine. You know, that kind of, there's that kind of idea that, that uh, oh, you know, there's there's always this thing, this danger lurking for you. Um, I don't know if that's, Maybe that's not getting getting across the idea. Uh, but let me come at it from a little bit of a different direction. That maybe maybe it's not so much about don't have too much fun, but it's it's de- there's definitely this sense of of you really need to keep uh, be careful of what we call our inventory. So uh, you know the in the fourth step of the twelve steps we take a searching and fearless moral inventory. But that's not enough because when you get through with that and by the time you get to step 10, it says we continue to take inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it, which is great. I mean, that's a good way to live. But as I say, there can be kind of this culture in the program of uh, you've got to constantly be uh, vigilant and watch out for any mistakes you make um, and and even that you are inherently flawed and that, and that uh, you know, you kind of have to uh, constantly be confessing your sins to your sponsor or something of that sort. Hmm. <laughs> doesn't sound very fun, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I'm exaggerating, but, but I'm just sort of describing a certain stream or a certain, uh, you know, um, attitude that's sometimes underlying uh, some twelve step of the in the twelve step scene. Yeah, when what you're starting to point to, which I'm curious about, is to really understand when it comes to recovering joy or finding happiness for somebody that has come back from an addiction. What are the unique challenges? that such a person faces, that perhaps somebody who hasn't gone through an addictive process and recovery from that addiction wouldn't know about, wouldn't understand. So I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit more. What's unique about finding happiness for people who have recovered from addiction? Yeah, well, the first thing is that we have spent, many of us who come into recovery have spent 
decades, certainly years, uh, with the, our only access to fun being through our drug of choice, our only access to pleasure, you know, being, you know, whether it's drinking or drugging or eating or sex addiction or whatever it is, we, we've lost touch with any kind of uh, simple pleasures, simple human pleasures, simple pleasures of life. And so, and then there's, you know, uh, actual neurochemical stuff going on, which, you know, they talk, we hear a lot more about these days, and I'm not at all an expert or particularly knowledgeable on that, but, you know, when your body gets used to getting its, like, dopamine fix from a, a drug, it stops making it for itself. So when people... Uh, detox, they're often left in this deep funk because you know, um, they're they're not producing any of the natural happiness chemicals uh, that their body should be producing. So between those two things, you're kind of left with, okay, the, the feeling many of us have, I think when we get clean and sober is, okay, I have to do this because my life is falling apart, but I'm probably never going to have any fun or be happy, truly happy again. Um, so, first of all, we have to find new ways to enjoy ourselves. Uh, or, as I talk about, maybe dig up some of the old ways that we had enjoyed ourselves before we were addicts. Uh, and so that's a big, that's a big uh, part of recovery. It's another one of those aspects of recovery which isn't spoken about a lot, or that isn't commonly understood, out, and, and maybe even in the recovery world, but certainly outside the recovery world. In your own life, how did you approach this question of having fun? How did you discover that you could have fun without intoxicants? Well, yeah, it. I was really surprised that um, just I just I felt kind of happy <laughs> as soon as I stopped drinking and using. I mean, literally that day, um, it was kind of there was this uplift right away for me. I wasn't probably addicted to the point that. I wasn't creating dopamine anymore. I don't know. But this is one of the little, I think I do it as an exercise in the book, but reflections for people to sort of remind them that just by giving up that destructive behavior, there's some happiness that comes out of that. And that's a fundamental Buddhist truth that letting go is really the way to happiness. So for me, there was that. And then for, for quite a few years, probably for a decade or longer, I, I just found my joy in work. And for a while, I was really overworking, but enjoying it. I mean, I was, you know, fundamentally to me, I found that well, life isn't. Life is actually got. There's all kinds of things that are joyful in life. It's not that I have to go out and, um, 
you know, buy a trampoline or something to to um, have fun. <laughs> you know, I I uh, when I went back to school, I was shocked. It was like. I love this, you know, I like, I'm having fun, I'm enjoy- I'm taking algebra, I'm sitting in the front row and raising my hand every five minutes, I, uh, you know, this is really neat, and so uh, that's, that's a big aspect of what this book is about, it, not about, oh, here's all the, the ten things you should go out and do to be happy, but rather, look at how your life is already full of things that are potential ways to be happy. Your relationships, your work, your um, your inner life, your spiritual life, your your community, uh, and so the, it's in, in a lot of ways. I think this book is about shifting perspective more than even taking a lot of different actions. But I want to put that shift in perspective, if you will, under a magnifying glass for a moment, because I can imagine someone having the experience of, look, you know, when I was high on whatever, that was really fun. And now you're talking about appreciating my relationships, enjoying work. Like, how do I make that shift? There's a pretty big gap between potentially someone's view of how much fun it is to be, you know, high on whatever compared to yeah. these simple pleasures. You're talking about the pleasure of work. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, uh, you know, to me, if you don't find some pleasure in your work, you're, you're, uh, you'd have to figure something out. But, but the, the question, um, first of all, I don't think people, I think it's really difficult for somebody to stay clean, to stay in recovery, if they really believe that there's a lot of fun still to be had in their addiction. Most people who get clean and come into a program do it because partly because it's stopped being fun. There isn't any real joy left in it. And the belief that there is some is part of their denial. And usually when they come out of denial and have that moment of clarity and and realize they really need to change, there's also an acknowledgement that this doesn't work anymore. Um, People who really feel that Oh, it was more fun getting loaded than than um, you know having a clean life. Uh, I I mean uh, I think they very often have a difficult time maintaining their recovery. Um, so there's that. Um, I think I guess that brings us back to mindfulness, though. The, your question about you know how do you kind of find joy in work and relationships and the simple parts of, uh, you know, daily life, the quotidian existence. And, and that's why, you know, mindfulness is in the subtitle of the book or mindful of the subtitle is a mindful life after addiction. I think we have to, 
as you know, mindfulness is really about waking up to our life as it is here and now. And and that's the other piece. And it's, it is another piece that's somewhat missing in the recovery world. It's it's implied in the statement one day at a time. Uh, it's, that's saying, you know, stay here in this moment, at least in this day. Don't get ahead of yourself. But mindfulness gives us that capacity to be one moment at a time, one breath at a time, as my first book was called, you know, to be engaged and to find the joy in this moment, when it, whether it's walking the dog or, um, you know, working on a project or going to a, another meeting or, um, you know, seeing the sun come up or go down. Uh, you know, that's that's the piece that's that I think can't be overlooked, and, and it's it's so critical to to happiness for any of us is is to be present and to to learn to be present in a comfortable way. You know, I'm curious, Kevin, if you have a kind of go-to move, for lack of a better way of putting it, that you turn to when you feel down, when you can't find the mindful appreciation of the moment when you just feel sort of in a funk, if you will? Hmm. You know, if there were one thing that always worked, uh, I'd have everything figured out. And, but because everything is impermanent, (laughs) things work and then they don't work. And, uh, you know, that's talking about being in a funk is, is, uh, you know, it's so, it's complicated, you know, I mean, I've struggled with depression much of my life and there are times, uh, I mean, well, let me say that the, the, the thing that makes it particularly difficult to get out of those states is that the state itself is one of low energy and negativity and a lack of belief in the possibility of feeling better right now. So that, that's kind of depression to me. So it's in that state, what's so hard is to turn to anything and and really many things will work anything from exercising to going to a meeting to a 12-step meeting sometimes meditating picking up a guitar um you know uh making a phone call to a friend there are lots of things that'll work the hard thing i think in those moments is to do anything is to do anything positive uh, because those moments are so crippling. And, and the, the, for me, the key is to remember, keep going, just keep moving. And so that's, I guess, my go-to thing is just show up for the next thing. So, you know, I have a teenage daughter, I'm married, uh, you know, I teach, I have responsibilities here and there when I'm 
feeling depressed, I just want to not be involved in any of those things. And fortunately, I've learned that the way to get out of the depression is to just do the next thing that I'm supposed to do. And that's very much a 12-step principle showing up. Uh, it's, an, again, I, you know, I have this sort of uh, ongoing uh, idea that that there's a lot of the kind of oral tradition of the 12-step world that isn't understood outside of it. People know about the 12 steps, and they know about powerlessness and higher power and stuff, but they don't realize that things like showing up are critical ideas in the recovery world. And because addicts and alcoholics are flakes, you know, and when we're drinking and using, we just don't show up or we don't bother. If we don't feel like it, we don't do it. And um, that was one of the first things that changed my life when I got sober was this idea that, oh, even if you don't feel like it, you, you do it anyway. I don't know if that answered your question. It does. It was a beautiful answer. In your book, Recovering Joy, I thought you did a beautiful job of emphasizing this idea of integrating values and behavior. You have a a quote from that chapter, we're not hiding any part of our lives from those that are close to us. And I wonder if you can talk more about that, that type of not hiding any part of our lives in secrecy or, uh, you know, some type of some actions that are we're unwilling to share because we don't want to be exposed. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm not sure what I can say about that, except that it's, you know, deceit and, and um, creating these compartments. Wasn't that the Clinton phrase, compartmentalizing? Um, is one of the ways that we, how can I characterize it? I think that we, we, you know, create shadows, we, we create separation, we create a falseness in our lives when we're living lies. Um, and that kind of, uh, living a double life or having secrets has a really corrupting influence on us and it it it, it kind of builds up an internal pressure that uh it sort of naturally comes out in addictive behavior um the there's this freedom that comes with with openness and honesty that's really remarkable and and I first experienced that when I shared started to share openly in 12 step meetings and it was this remarkable feeling of relief that I could be honest about what I felt and and admit the problems that were going on in my life and the struggles and share them with the group uh, it's this kind of radical honesty that the 12-step world encourages that we don't see anywhere else. You know, I, I, this makes me think of something that I I talk about sometimes at, in some of my meditation groups, uh, my kind of Dharma and recovery 
groups that we often call them. When I talk about the five precepts in Buddhism, the precept not to kill, not to steal, not to harm with our sexuality, not to lie or harm with our speech, and not to use intoxicants. And one of the things that I point out, because the five precepts, when I got exposed to Buddhism at first, I thought, oh, the precepts, that's kind of like the kindergarten version of Buddhism. You know, everybody knows that stuff. I want to get the, you know, the enlightenment stuff. So show me the special meditation that's going to transform me. But now I kind of see it almost opposite, that the precepts are really the heart of Buddhism in many ways. And what I like to point out to people is that even though most of the people who are probably in my class aren't going around breaking these precepts to any significant degree, if everybody in the world followed one precept, and since we're talking about the truth, if everybody in the world told the truth all the time, if there were, if there were no lies, the world would be completely transformed. That's just one precept. And that, to me, some, for some reason, I find that very moving. You know, the idea just if if we could if everybody in the world just followed one even if nobody used intoxicants the world would be a very different place uh, certainly if no one killed uh, obviously things would be a whole lot better or, or if no one stole just one precept so uh, you know that that puts for me kind of a spin on honesty that shows how powerful uh, it it is in some real very real way you're listening to insights at the edge produced by sounds true we welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. One of the linkages that you made in your book was between ethical behavior, you could say, or being truthful, what we're talking about here, and feeling joyful. And I wonder if you can make that explicit for our listeners. How will confessing and telling the truth to people, how is this going to lead to joy, do you think? Or how has it led to joy for you? Yeah. Well, there's one translation of one of the Buddhist suttas that says... um, that, that describes the bliss of blamelessness. Um, I, I, I like that alliteration and the, the idea that a lot of us walk around with some sense of something that's not quite right. And, and particularly for addicts, addicts are usually doing something illegal and or immoral on a regular basis. And they typically don't feel 
how much of a burden that is until it's removed. And really, it's just very freeing to not have this uh, sense of of guilt or fear of being found out. Uh, you know, the, my my little description of uh, of how how this can work is when you're used to drinking and using a lot and you have been operating a vehicle under the influence a lot when you're sober and you're driving along at night and all of a sudden the flashing lights go on in your rearview mirror as you're pulling over you realize the worst that can happen is i get a speeding ticket Whereas when you've got that, you know, booze on your breath, or you've got the dope in the glove compartment, you know, it's just whoa. And so that that can actually be this wonderful moment when you go, ah, wow, you know, uh, it's good to not be going around breaking the law all the time. So I don't know if that makes <laughs> how happy that makes people. It kind of. It's just that that's, I guess that's part of my like not unhappy philosophy. You know, it's not exactly a thrill, but it's this kind of relief and uh, and it just makes life simpler. It's just interesting that, you know, adulthood is associated with all these behaviors that um, complicate life. I mean, beyond the ones that we have to do, the ones we take on, you know, drinking, and, you know, being intoxicated while trying to function or, you know, fooling around with your neighbor's partner or, uh, you know, wasting your paycheck at the casino. and All these things that are supposed to be fun, you know, that really, uh, I don't know. No, I really like this phrase that you've offered, the bliss of blamelessness. And, you know, it's one thing to start living in a way that's ethical and in integrity and not creating any new harm. But in the 12-step process, from what I read about it in your book, Recovering Joy, there's actually quite a deeper investigation where you go into your past and make amends for things in one's past. That's very interesting to me. And I wonder if you can share a little bit about how that process worked for you and how you think that might relate to happiness. Yeah, uh, it's a critical piece of the 12-step process and the 12-step program. The fourth step saying we made a searching fearless moral inventory of ourselves and then the fifth step, step is admitting to God, to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Um, when I, uh, I, I I avoided that step for almost a year and then uh, when I got a sponsor around the time I was a year sober he immediately got me working on it and what I did was I just I went back as far as I could remember to kind of my early teenage years and wrote about all the ways that I had hurt people and, you know, one of the things that I, I realized was that seeing that I was actually capable of hurting people sort of surprised me. It gave me some
some sense of my own power that in a way I had sort of diminished in the past. But obviously that wasn't what I was seeking. It wasn't really the main outcome. The main outcome for me from that was a sense of, oh, wow, how can I describe this? Again, it was like this shining a light on something that I didn't want to look at. But when I, once I looked at it, I could accept it. I could accept myself. I could forgive myself. And, and of course, part of that process, then the further steps one goes on and makes amends for the things that one can. But most of the things that I had done, I couldn't make amends for. And so it was really... It, it, it harks back to before I got sober, when I couldn't admit the ways that I hurt people, when I had to blame others, and and the tension and just uh, kind of feeling of being closed off and incomplete and sort of fighting with the world that that creates, and being able to just go, you know, I just did all this stuff. And finally, I think what that does, and particularly after I shared it with my sponsor, and he kind of showed me and helped me to see and feel that what I had done was just something that human beings do, things that humans do, not not uniquely bad Kevin things. But they were just, oh, I'm not the only one to do this. It's another reason that going to meetings can be so important that you realize you're not alone in your feelings and in your behaviors. And yeah, you screwed up, but you you know, you're not uh, the worst person in the world. You're just another, in my case, alcoholic addict. And then that, so, and that for me then ties into the Buddhist world again of not self, of, of seeing that my identity is this construction and that I'm not really separate from the world. There isn't this unique thing called Kevin that has some, you know, failings, but rather than, oh, yeah, I'm just a human being who does things, makes mistakes. And, of course, at that point, being sober and clean and sober and now trying to live a moral life across the board, then it's easier to accept my mistakes when I've changed. I'm not making those mistakes anymore. Now, is the idea that after you do this moral inventory, that if there's any action you could take, like writing somebody a letter and apologizing or saying, you know, you wished you'd acted differently in XYZ situation, are you supposed to do that, write what could be hundreds of letters? (laughs) Now you're now you're on to step nine, which is, which is uh, made direct amends to those people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. It could be it could be uh, contacting a lot of people. I I didn't try to chase. First of all, you realize, and this is why you need a sponsor, somebody who's experienced in the program, to take you through this process they will point out to you that calling up your ex-girlfriend to say you're really sorry you were mean to her uh, 
isn't helping her, that she probably doesn't want to hear from you. So just apologizing to people doesn't, uh, you know, it, uh, there's a lot of cases where that just doesn't help. Um, so there were only a few direct amends that I made. They were mostly mostly to my family. I think they may have all been to my family. Um, so, yeah, it's not so much that you're going to chase down every, you know, person that you ever, you know, insulted or every uh, lover that you jilted or whatever. Because uh, because you're, you're, the point of making the amends is to is for them, not for you. And and as I say, a lot of times, say, saying you're sorry to people isn't going to help them. Uh, the best thing we can do really is is change our behavior and, and not keep doing that stuff. Now, Kevin, as someone who is so deeply steeped in both the twelve step work and also being a teacher of Buddhist meditation. Have you found that there were any places in working both with the Dharma and Buddhist teachings and the 12-step program where you were just like, God, these things are contradictory. I can't put it together. It doesn't work. You know, there are irreconcilable differences here. Or did you never hit such a point? Well, a lot of my work has been finding those connections. And in fact, when I got sober, I was already a Buddhist practitioner. And when I saw the 12 steps for the first time and for several years, I couldn't see any correlations. Uh, But I kind of felt like, well, I've got to stay sober, so I've got to do these steps. And I really love the Dharma, I love Buddhism, so I'm going to keep meditating and going on retreats and studying that, but I'll just keep them separate. Um, but eventually, like when I was about five or six years sober, I, I started to I started to feel like I need to integrate these things. And that, and that was, you know, quite a lengthy t- period of time of, uh, it wasn't a struggle but it was uh, a lot of reflection and and uh, conversation and really kind of trying to make the connections. Um, certainly, there are people who will argue with me today about my ideas about God uh, because, you know, I've been able to, I'm very comfortable with the idea that the Dharma is a higher power and that we can use it as a higher power in this 12-step program. Other people just, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, God is God, and, you know, you, to equate God and the Dharma is like, you know, sacrilege or whatever. Um, but uh, there have definitely been times when I've had to dig, and, but uh, finally I do feel that uh, that the 12 steps and Buddhism can be reconciled across the board. But it, it takes imagination, and it and it also takes um, kind of I, for me looking beneath the surface both. And and so I, what I'm interested in is is really trying to find 
like the archetypal path that that any spiritual path is trying to describe and and that's what I kind of feel like I'm drawing from when I connect the two. I'm curious to know what some of the most important connections have been for you sitting there five or six years studying both paths and then finding that archetypal point of connection if you could elucidate that for us. Yeah. Well, the starting point is the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths that tell us that suffering is caused by clinging and by you know craving. And that uh, that clearly is speaking to the same issue that the twelve steps are addressing. So that gives us uh, a real foothold on connecting them. As we know they're both trying to, they both recognize the same truth that in 12-step world addiction, but in Buddhist world, you know, clinging, again, you know, synonyms, I think. Um, they both agree that that's, that's the problem. So that, mean, that means that they're both, uh, if, if they've both got a solution, that they mo- must be in some way talking about the same thing as a solution. At least that's my sort of my argument. So just to get back to like how the steps work, so the steps start with acknowledging the truth of your lack of control over your addiction. Uh, that's what they call powerlessness. So in the archetypal sense, I think of that as, as the kind of starting in the darkness, uh, starting with the uh, with the with the problem and and again the first noble truth starts with the problem the truth of suffering so uh, what we see is that both both traditions are saying we have to start by seeing very clearly acknowledging and accepting that there is this inherent problem in addiction it's a problem that we've kind of created in buddhism it's more like the problem of existence. It's more of an existential problem. But it's starting... I I really like the fact that they both start with the difficulty rather than starting by making promises of you know everlasting life or happiness or joy or whatever. They both start by saying, no, we need to look at the, in the, at the dark side first and see that clearly. In Buddhism, we discover when we start to meditate that we're powerless over our own minds and bodies that they that our minds keep spewing out these thoughts and feelings that our bodies have these sensations and all this stuff is just going on you know here i am sitting down i'm going to meditate and follow my breath 10 seconds later i forgot all about it i'm, I'm thinking about dinner you know I, I start to realize very quickly that you're not really running the show so uh, I like to make that connection with step one in the 12 steps that we're kind of powerless, not just over drugs and alcohol, but in some way over our, over our mind, over our thoughts. And, but that doesn't mean that we can't have some influence over them. In the same way that when we say we're powerless over alcohol, for instance, we're not saying, oh, that means I have to drink. So if I say I'm powerless over my thoughts, it doesn't mean I have to think. It means that I have to change my relationship. 
I have to change my relationship to my thoughts. I have to change my relationship to alcohol. That the shift then that happens is that there's an acknowledgement in both traditions that it's ego trying to run the show that gets us in trouble and that we have to find another path. So in, Buddha, in the 12 steps is very explicit. We turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. In Buddhism, we see this in the taking refuge. We say we take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And now that's how I understand turning my will and my life over is that I'm taking refuge. What that means to me is that instead of following my ego-driven impulse and addictive cravings and self-centered thinking, I'm going to try to act according to the principles of the Dharma. I'm going to try to see my experience through the lens of Dharma rather than through the lens of Kevin. So that's turning it over. That's saying, okay, in this moment... I want to go get drunk and screw the lady next door. And instead, I'm going to not drink and I'm going to meditate or whatever. I'm just, it's a little extreme. But, uh, you know, the, the Dharma gives us this wonderful guidance for how to live our lives. And turning our lives over means that we try to live our lives in accordance to that. So that's kind of the beginning of the process of steps one through three. Um, the I see the inventory process as being very much what happens when we're meditating. You sit down to meditate and your story comes up. So it's like a real-time inventory. It's a real-time self-examination of, of what's inside me, what, what my tendencies are, what my habits of mind are. And and so that for me, meditation is a daily inventory and and process of letting go, which is what steps six and seven then are about. So, is that enough? <laughs> well, I love the fact that you're describing it in archetypal terms, that you're getting to the essence and... You know, I think that's really beautiful and means that you're drawing also on the depth of your own experience. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, you know, one of the principles of my teaching and of my work of connecting Buddhism and the 12 steps is that if two things are both true, then they must agree with each other. And so... I, my job is just to figure out how they agree with each other. And a lot of that then becomes about language. And that's a, certainly a lot of what I have to do around the 12 steps because people really struggle with the 12-step language. Uh, you know, the 12-step literature, a lot of it was written, I mean, the steps were created in the late 30s and and the literature, much of it was written before 1950. And our culture has changed so much since then. Language has changed so much since then that uh, people often feel alienated by it. I mean, we were, you know, a very homogenous culture, at least we thought we were, in 1935. And uh, I don't remember that, but I'm, you know, from what I understand. And clearly now there's this wide swath of the American public that doesn't identify with any 
of the Abrahamic religions. And the, so when they hear language like turn your will and your life over to the care of God, they just, you know, uh, their hackles rise up, whatever hackles are. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so I have to work work with people a lot on translating that kind of language, or, or even terms like powerlessness or moral inventory. You know, these are all things that tend to really get people uh, alienated. And uh, so, and I find that really interesting because I I love language, and and um, I mean that's one of the reasons I'm a writer. Um, and I like to drill down uh, into meanings of of words and, and find correlations. Now, Kevin, one of the things I'm curious about is your own study of addiction in your own life as a Buddhist practitioner. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's one thing to be addicted to alcohol or an intoxicant, but there are so many subtle levels of addiction that I think many of us start to become aware of in our life. And I'm curious how that's unfolded for you, that investigation into subtle ways that you might be addicted? Well, first of all, I'm kind of careful about the way I use the word addiction. Uh Um, Because it becomes trivialized when I say, you know, I'm addicted to watching that TV show or something like that. So uh, my definition of addiction includes the idea that this behavior, whatever it is, is um, harmful to me and or others. So, um, you know, although I certainly would say that I'm, I, I, you know, so, the, okay, so, so the basic Buddhist addiction is the core Buddhist addiction. I think we could say is the addiction to self. And I guess we could say that that does cause harm. Um, but it's so subtle that most of the time you can't do a whole lot about it. That's, Maybe that's a, a um, abdicating responsibility, my Buddhist responsibility. But I'll start by saying that, and then I'll see if I can work around that a little bit. That um, you know, so as you're, if you're meditating and you're, you know, you're, if you're like in a good, really deep space with your practice, which for me that mostly happens on retreats, and you get to that place where things are very still, you can start to see and you probably know this from your own experience, that kind of see the arising of ego, see self kind of constructing itself. And in those moments, there is the possibility of letting go. But as soon as the bell rings or the retreat is over, it's pretty hard to um, maintain that clarity and that perspective. What I think we do then is 
try to bring those insights into our behavior, into our relationships, into our conversation, uh, intentionally reminding ourselves. And this is what I mean by turning your will in your life. I don't know if you can make this connection or you can understand this connection. The third step in the 12 steps is so key to me, turning your will in your life over to the care of the Dharma. You know, to try to, okay, wow, my ego is really jumping in there. You know, can I back off? Let me. Can I look at this situation differently? Can I handle this interaction differently? Can I drop my selfing? You know, can I? Can my behaviors not be so self-centered? So uh, it brings me back as well to the to the precepts. The five precepts are, to some extent, you know, about letting go of self. Because self wants what it wants, and it wants it now. And that's how we harm people, is by acting on self. So to have these guidelines to behavior and to relationship then help us to do less harm, you know, just, uh, and I say that because I think it's hard to not do some harm uh, around ego and that kind of clinging. Now, I don't know if there were other kinds of uh, addictions you were thinking of. Um, I really just wanted to understand how you saw it at subtler levels in your life. Yeah. Well, I think that's the most subtle level, and it's the, and I think it's the most important level. Um, I'm actually teaching a retreat at Kripalu with Bill Alexander on this topic, on addiction to self. And, um, yeah, I think it's kind of the core, core addiction. And, and, uh, you know, the breakthrough into enlightenment is a breakthrough in relation to that, that form of clinging, that form of addiction. Okay, Kevin, I want to ask you just two final questions. Both are a little personal, which is you said, you know, I wrote the book in some way that was the book I needed to hear these teachings on happiness because I'm not really a happiness guy. And I'm curious to know, after writing a book that contains dozens and dozens of different exercises for reflection and suggestions for self-examination, has your relationship to happiness changed? I don't think so. Um, hmm. Well, I think I have, yeah, uh, in the past year I actually have started to take more responsibility for my happiness because I did realize at a certain point last summer that I was kind of coasting and that, you know, my tendency is to fall into, uh, whatever happens, happens kind of, and, uh, realizing once again that I was getting stuck fundamentally because I wasn't engaged in the process. So, so yeah, um, 
that is something that I've I have been uh, working at, and and I'm not sure if it's exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, it's funny writing a book. Um, I don't look back a lot after I write a book, so I'm I'm not kind of look at the book going, oh, should I do this? Um, I feel like things that are in this book are things that are integrated into my life in some way. Um, but the, you know, I think spiritual life is all, almost always about renewal. There's this constant renewal. And again, because everything is impermanent, you get it, then you lose it. And you can't recreate it in exactly the same way. You know, no two periods of meditation are exactly the same. So that realization that I really need to stay engaged, I think was the most important uh, insight that I had in the past year. And tell me what you mean by that, stay engaged. Um, keep First of all, keep doing the things that I know, keep help my mood, uh, and also stay open to uh, different ways of uh, of staying emotionally healthy. Okay, Kevin, one final question. Our program's called Insights at the Edge, and I'm always curious to know what someone's edge is, meaning their sort of personal growth edge, if you will, that currently is what's up for them, that they're really working on at the moment. I think it is what I just said that is being willing to stay engaged. I think that there's a certain kind of fatigue that sets in after you've been engaged in a spiritual practice uh, for many years, a recovery program for many years, and there and you know you've written these books and you're an authority, so you can forget that. Oh, each day is a new day, and you need to stay present for it. Um, I did just have a wonderful retreat with Venerable Analio uh, on the Satipatthana, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and that really engaged my uh, mindfulness practice. So, that's about it. Staying engaged. Yeah. Kevin, it's really been, I'm going to say it, a joy. It's true. (laughs) I'm going to go further than not just being unhappy. It's really been a joy (laughs) to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Tammy. It's really great to talk to you. I hope we'll meet in person before too long. I've been speaking with Kevin Griffin. He's the author of a new book called Recovering Joy, A Mindful Life After Addiction. He has also created a new audio series with Sounds True called Recovery, One Breath at a Time. Thanks again, Kevin. Thank you so much. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.